He said, I saw three jet black, hair covered, huge, I don't know, Bigfoot, I guess. They get a kick out of uh, playing with humans. They toss rocks out in front of the trail or they do the tree knocking and that kind of sort of stuff. Uh, but we had one female, I, I'm guessing female, okay. just because of the high pitch, sound off with a five or six second long melody and it changed in volume it changed in tone it changed in um uh rhythm and she would do this for five or six seconds and then there'd be a pause and then maybe seven eight seconds later she would do it again exactly verbatim the way the first one came I looked at my friend, my, my native friend, I said, have you ever thought about just approaching them? <laughs> and he looks at me and goes, hell no. <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know what? If they're making themselves known to us, then obviously they're trying to make contact or they're not a afraid of us knowing they're there. But anyway, I'm like, hold my beer. I'm just making a beeline for those eyes. And I think I got within 50 or 60 feet of them and they just finally blinked out. And at that, I turned around and walked back. He still talks about that crazy way, man. That's some of what you missed from last week's podcast if you didn't catch it. Todd Neese, The American Primate Conservancy, Part 1. Hey all, this is Don with the Paranormal Portal. And just wanted to let you know we appreciate you listening and uh, just making those comments and, and helping us grow. As promised, I said last week that I would be presenting Part 2 of Todd Neese, American Primate Conservancy, this week. So here we go. I've got it uh, all queued up and ready to go so we're going to be joining mr brent thomas and uh, uh myself and todd niece uh in the middle of the conversation and here we go this is bob Gimling, and you're listening to the paranormal portal that's incredible i wonder i you know i, I wonder about that whole the luminescent eyes things, and of course, I've heard, I've heard it many times. I interviewed a, a gentleman, Kevin Keeney of uh, Arizona, and he talked about being up there in the pitch dark in the Mogollon Ridge, and that he sees it there. And and it it seems hard to understand. And the reason that it's that I struggle with it is because if light is leaving the eye, mm -hmm. how are you perceiving light? You know, or what what is exactly? You know, that's where I get stuck. It's like, how does that work? See that was that was my my conundrum, if you will, because yeah. if your eyes are projecting light, it'd be like it would be def self defeating because you're basically becoming light blind. For instance, when we go when we go out uh, and train in the in the infantry in the army, there's a you know you train that if the enemy ser sends a flare. Mm -hmm up which is meant to light up the battlefield sure you always keep your shooting eye closed because oh. you're you're the other eye is going to become night blind for probably 30 seconds or more but you want to make sure your shooting eye isn't being you know defeated sure. so would it not be self-defeating to have eyes that project light and the damn thing answers uh, absolutely but we're not talking about that we're talking about the trapezium and we're talking about not necessarily so so what I would what I would relate it to is night vision scopes. Okay. So night vision scopes, uh, and they're probably, you know, initially um, derived from cats or, you know, other animals that can see well in the night, mm -hmm. but they're they what they make they have an array of cells in the back of the eye mm. that just literally absorb moonlight and starlight. Uh -huh. But a night vision device doesn't project light at all. Right. 
it just absorbs light and somehow it's able to translate that to the brain as a illuminated picture of what they were looking at. So yeah, you're right. And that, that's exactly what I thought. That's why I never bought into it. I'm like, you know, and it's not like they looked around and you can see two eye, you know, beams of light coming out of their head. Right. Because again, that would be self-defeating. But if their retinas, um, the trapezium has the ability to absorb moonlight and even starlight on a moonless night, um, and help them help the, you know, their brain has the ability to incorporate that in their normal vision and enhance it somehow. I totally get it. And it's very possible. In fact, there was a series, a three part series on the discovery channel, like two weeks ago that really caught my attention. And I, I think I recorded it, but you got to find it because it's, uh, it's all about, um, the whole thing, three different, it's a three part series. Okay. And the entire thing is filmed using state of the art night vision. And by that, I mean, full color spectrum, not this green oh. grainy stuff that we had in the military or that I had, sure. but I've actually got a camera sitting right next to me. It's a psionics camera that mm. literally gives you full color yep. at night. Those are awesome. It pictures. almost looks like daylight. It almost looks like daylight, but I've got a red truck and a blue car and a, you know, a green Jeep and you can literally see the colors. You can oh. describe them very clearly. That's a red truck. That's a green Jeep. That's a oh. blue car. It's amazing, the technology. And I guarantee you, whatever they have, 20 times more expensive than what I have. But still, the technology is there now. And they film the entire thing in 4K, full-color spectrum, night vision. And I swear to God, it's it's like day vision with maybe sunglasses on. Wow. But still, it, the animals have no idea they're there. And, you know, we look at things like bioluminescence. It does exist in nature. We see it a lot in aquatic animals, sure. everything from deep deep sea fish to jellyfish mm -hmm. to uh, photoplankton. And, we, and, and terrestrially, we have it too. You know, we see it with, um, of course, fireflies. They have this chemical ability to emit light, but that's for mating purposes. Mm -hmm. um, we know most feline species and of course owls and uh even the taser um of the primate species have amazing night vision but do we have a mammal that can literally generate light to the point to where if you had no light on it at all you'd see their eyes well in watching that series and it was in the first it was in the first of the three-part series they and they're going all over the world at night, only using night vision. The entire show is all done in night vision. Wow. And they went down to Argentina, and they were filming uh, pumas, mm -hmm. kind of like our mountain lions or sure. critters. Yep. And their eyes literally emitted light. Wow. Okay. They could have turned off. They could have turned off the night vision and you'd still see the eyes. Wow. They're that sensitive. So that now I'm kind of getting a little hotter on the trail on what might make Bigfoot tick. Sure. But I'm telling you, again, without the without the uh, the vocalizations, I might have been on the fence, but after hearing the vocalizations, and there were many of them and very different, mm -hmm. um, If I don't know how much time we have, but I, I could give you a brief example we got, what, um, we got of a, another hour. So what's that? We have another hour. So oh, whatever. Keep going. Yeah. yeah. Oh, for crying out loud. <laughs> so, well, I can go on for days. So keep going. <laughs> Twenty-eight years worth of crap. Anyway, so um, there was a time, and now my I have to say, my my Native American friend is, um, he is actually a Mormon, and he's very devout. Mm -hmm. And you know, of course, he hangs on to his Native culture and, and traditions, but uh, he was converted to uh, Latter-day Saints, and um, and that was evident the whole time I was there. And So we're out there, I think it was Wednesday, and we weren't getting a lot of activity, and he said, you know, I want to try something. He says, I haven't done this in a while, but sometimes when I do this, 
I get responses. Mm. And I said, yeah. And he goes, I want to pray with them. Oh. Wow. And, you know, sometimes they listen, sometimes they respond. So I went, okay, I'm game. So again, he yells out, Aho, Kage! I want to pray for you. I want to pray to my creator, our creator, for your health and happiness and safety. And uh, if you want to participate, um, Gigaho, which meant come closer. Okay. And nothing really happened that I could tell at the, at the beginning. And so he bows his head. We're both our head. We're standing on the edge of this road. And he starts doing, going into his prayer, which was all done in English, by the way. And about 90, sec, 90 seconds into a three-minute prayer, I was just blown away. Um, maybe from 60 feet away, I would estimate. Uh -huh. We get. Oh wow! Four times and ten times louder than that, mind you. Sure. Like within ten seconds. Ten seconds. It's just like, I mean, it was so close I could feel it. <laughs> and I, of course, I can't lift my head because we're praying and I'm just like, say amen already. Cause I just, the first thing I want to do is go, dude, was that them? And it, it, it was kind of rhetorical cause I knew what it was, Sure. but he goes, yeah. He said, yeah, I told you sometimes they respond to that. Wow. I'm like, Oh my God. And, um, and there were other sounds, there were other sounds that went on. Um, and Oh, one time, I think it was Wednesday, daytime because I was going to bed like three o'clock in the morning, mind you, almost every night. Cause I had to drive 20 minutes from the res just to get to my motel. Oh. So I get to bed at three. I wake up at like 11 <laughs> and I, you know, recharge, go back out. Um, but this time I wanted to see the area where this was going on in the daylight. Because you know me, I, I mean, I, well, you don't, but I mean, I'm a, I'm a skeptic. Uh-huh. You know, I'm like, don't, do not hoax me because right. I will figure it out. Sure. And I didn't really, you know, again, I'm being rhetorical because I trust this gentleman to do a T. Sure. And we've gotten to know each other two years before I even got out there. But, um, and the guy's got a PhD. Oh. He's not, okay. you know. Yeah. He's not a, an, an idiot. Yeah. And uh, so... It's like I want to go out there in the daylight just because. I mean, I knew the I knew the Macy was locked down. The the main village was locked down. Mm -hmm. Nobody gets out after ten, and we're out there, you know, hours after that. Just the same. I was like, is, could, could there be some kind of ambient light in the background? Could there be some street lights, or is there a house back there? Is there anything else that might be able to generate light? You know, this is just me playing. You know, yeah, devil's advocate trying to eliminate any other possibilities. And what I found when I got out there in the daylight was the background was a big hillside. It was almost like an amphitheater that went way above the height of, you know, I mean, went up maybe 40, 50 feet behind them, like a stage almost. So I, I that just, you know, eliminated that for me. And I'm kicking myself I didn't bring any game cameras, but what I did bring was, well, one was my FLIR, the other was um, a Tascam, which is a you know digital tape recorder, uh -huh. which can technically tape for days. And so I thought I'm going to go out there in the daytime. I just I just got to have you know eyes on what what's what I'm dealing with because I hadn't seen anything of it but in pitch black. And as soon as I got there, it pretty much eliminated any other um, exterior. Oh. Uh, sources of light. Sure. So I decided to hike up there on this ridge, which again was maybe, I don't know, 80, 90 feet from the road, which is generally where we saw them. Mm -hmm. And then I would find out when I got up there, there was kind of a little dip, maybe dip down 20 feet or so behind that 
uh, a little bowl, if you will, and then it went up into that, you know, backstop. Okay. And so I got up that ridge thinking, okay, I know for a fact these things are active from, you know, midnight to two or three in the morning. So I'm just assuming that they're probably sleeping mm-hmm. in the daytime. Sure. I, I learned a long time ago, they own the night. They do. Yeah. So I get out there, I set up the camera, I hit the button on the Tascam, the red light comes on, I'm, I, I, I'm like, okay, it's recording. I put it face down and put some leaves over it, thinking we'll come back here tonight when they do their little thing, and I'll, I'll, this time I'm going to get the vocalizations. Well, I no sooner stood up, again, broad daylight, I no, I no sooner stood up when... Little Miss, the one I call the singer, belts out at about my 11 o'clock, belts out another verse, which was exactly identical to what she did two nights ago on Monday, but it was just one verse, but it was, again, I never forgot that. And it was the exact same notes, same tone, same volume, same everything. She did it once. And I'm like going, holy crap. They're still up. (laughs) And, but I heard her. And again, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. I thought she was like welcoming me. That's kind of the feeling I got. And then I said, okay, thought you were sleeping. And I start walking toward the the car down at the road. And I got maybe uh, 20 feet or so. When again, broad daylight, nobody else is in the area. No cars, nobody. This is what I get. <laughs> six rapid fire tree knocks and now it's coming from three o'clock so almost the opposite direction oh. of what she did and it was again much louder um it was amazing that is i've amazing. heard tree knocks but not six rapid fire tree knocks like that and i just like okay i'm out of here <laughs> and uh and then now I'm going to, I, I don't even have to say this, but I'm going to throw myself under the bus. Uh, I hadn't used a Taz cam in a while because like I say, when I stood up, she did that little verse. Sure. I'm thinking right on. Yeah. This is, I got this for posterity, you know, history made. Um, uh, <laughs> I forgot that you have to hit the power button twice. Yeah. The first time you oh. hit it, the red light comes on. The right. second time you hit it, it flashes, and that tells you it's recording. But I was in the in the in the, the, the heat of the moment, in the, the excitement of the moment. I got that red light on. I'm like, good enough. <laughs> but so suffice to say, I didn't get Jack nothing. Oh, that's so, so bad. Um, there I know, but you know what? I'm going back. I swear to God, I'm going back. Good. As consistent as consistent as it was. Mm-hmm. Night after night after night after night, and in two locations. Right. Uh, I can almost guarantee you that I can meet you at the Omaha International Airport, and we can drive up to the res, and I could show you the same thing tomorrow night. Wow. Almost guaranteed. Almost guaranteed. That's amazing. We, I was, we were never disappointed. It's that consistent. That's what really boggles my mind. I mean, the eye shine thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, okay, I've been writing this off as a bunch of, you know, supernatural crap. And, and now I, now I got to eat my words and I got to figure out how it happens. Good for you. I, I, and I will. I think that's awesome that, you, you know, a, a lot of people shuffle that stuff away and just won't revisit it. But I think you're right. If you're on the, if you're on the path of learning and gaining knowledge, you've got to question everything and you've got to look into everything. I want to take a moment to talk to you about Chime. It can be incredibly daunting to pick the right banking solution as many banks hide fees and add fees and costs at every turn. Are you sure your bank is on your side? Chime is different. Chime is an award-winning app and debit card featuring no hidden fees. That's no overdraft fees, foreign transaction fees, monthly service fees, or transfer fees. Your money is always accessible with Chime with access to over 60,000 fee-free in-network ATMs at Walgreens, 7-Eleven, CVS, and more. It's time to say goodbye to hidden fees. Join the millions of Americans already loving Chime. 
Sign-up takes only two minutes and doesn't affect your credit score. So get started today at Chime.com paranormal. That's Chime.com paranormal. Banking services provided by and debit card issued by the Bancorp Bank or Stride Bank N.A., members FDIC. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees apply except at MoneyPass ATM in a 7-Eleven location and at any AllPoint or Visa Plus Alliance ATM. Other fees, such as third-party and cash deposit fees, may apply. Who do you think has more knowledge about Bigfoot and Sasquatch? People have been here for 300 years. People have been here for 19,000 years. Um, we got a question in the, uh, a couple of them actually, but I'll ask the first one. It's from Rachel and she says, sure. are there many reports of Bigfoot blocking roads to prevent people from either driving into or leaving back out of forested areas, trees stopping people from leaving the same way? Well, first of all, hi, Rachel. And thank you for the question. Um, yes and no. So, um, I've gone into some areas, uh, Back, gotta get in the wayback machine. But I've been in some areas where I've gone through where there was some activity in a certain watershed, and we were called actually by the employees of the watershed to go back and check on. I think it's the Wishkoff watershed that fed into the Aberdeen watershed and on the Washington coast. And uh, I went with a gentleman named Fred Bradshaw, and he's since passed away, unfortunately. But uh, we went, we we hiked these trails. Uh, daily for for a better part of a week, and there were times where we went down a trail that was completely unblocked, mm-hmm. and on our way back found them blocked off. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I can attest to. Now, I guess the question, you know, obviously we could get around that okay. on foot, and so it makes sense that maybe that's just like a like a sign, like, uh, you're not welcome back here. Right. <laughs> However, if you drove a vehicle past that and they blocked it off, I would think they're smart enough to think that now they've trapped you in the area they want you to go. So, mm. uh, and I've not, I've not had that experience, uh, to be honest with you with a vehicle, but I've had it happen a couple of times when on foot. So, okay. um, I'm just thinking, they may do that, but, uh, they may do that with the understanding that you can get around it. Mm. and maybe read between the lines and don't come back. Mm. Right. And the other question we got in here is from Ghost Magnet, uh, saying, did the vocalizations have a mimicking quality? The ones I heard in my woods in Oklahoma called my name in my mom's voice. She was inside the house and Mm. said she didn't call me. I, I, I can say from my experience and that of uh, some of my fellow researchers that they do mimic um, not only perhaps, well, well certainly other animals, um, but in as much as mimicking humans, I've not experienced that, but I've heard that. Um, especially when individuals have had the opportunity to and, and the, the bravado mm-hmm. to continually go back in where they know these things are. And they, there seems to be relationships established. And I really think, again, uh, referring to their, their intellect, which I think, you know, we talked about academic intellect versus natural intellect, sure. um, that, uh, one, they're again, very curious about us Two, Um, I really believe they have a language mm-hmm. and if they have a language and we have a language, I don't think it would be unusual for them just as it would be unusual for us. Let's say you were, 
I'll give you a case in point. Let's say you were captured by in World War II by North Vietnamese uh, people, and, and you were in prison for two or three years, or you know, pick any country, sure, any language. The bottom line is, over time, you're going to start making relationships between what they're talking about and the words they're using to describe it. Sure. And over time, you're going to start learning that language. And I do think they're that curious that, that they, they want, regardless of whether they can mimic us, they really want to understand us. Sure. I think what we're dealing with, and you, and you haven't alluded to this, but I'm just going to jump right out there and say that this, that I, I for the longest time, I made assumptions, I know, I know, <laughs> um, that because the easy, the easy answer is these things, the closest thing we can see related to these are that of the Gigantopithecus of Eastern Asia um, history. And, and fossils have been found of a giant ape called the Gigantopithecus, uh, in fact, now a subspecies, and that they were known to be a giant bipedal ape. Okay. The question is, did they, were they able to transition the Bering Strait or what was called Beringia at the time, the, the landmass between Russia, what's known out known as Russia and, and Alaska. Mm -hmm. And there's, I used to think that I really did. I mean, here's our, here's our one and only prototype. And so they have to be related. I, I don't believe that anymore. I, and I don't for a number of reasons. Okay. Um, one is that the bio, the um, evolutionary process to go from an ape, such as Gigantopithecus, which was known to be both bipedal and quadruped, mm -hmm. um, we're talking hip joints, knee joints, ankle joints, foot, foot joints, uh, and, and even spinal uh, pelvic and spinal differences would take a hell of a lot of time uh -huh. to transition to strictly bipedal. The second thing is their diet, and they were able to determine the diet from these these molars and these jawbones they found. They were actually able to find some plant life in the dentine of the of the molars, uh -huh. uh, as old as they were. That they were plant eaters and mostly um, dined on um, bamboo. How are they going to go sure. 500, 600 miles north into where none of that, that, that habitat's available and then cross over the Bering Strait and then come into another area where that habitat's not available? My, my current belief, <laughs> is that a cop-out or what? My current <laughs> belief is that um, what we're dealing with is a, a relic hominid, an ancient man, um, not, not so, well, similar to Cro-Magnon and Neanderthal and, and whatnot, but, and, and, but those are mainly European models, but a different model, a different um, species of relic hominid, not human, but hominid, same sort of line, such as we would call Neanderthal, uh, Neanderthal, and then Cro-Magnon, um, uh, the same thing of a, a predecessor of, of Homo sapiens. I think that's what we're dealing with. I just think the environment that they were thrust into, unlike Europe, was mainly montane and forested, and they had to adapt accordingly, and, and to do so, um, they had to be robust, such as the grizzlies, for instance. Sure. Um, and they had to be uh, survivors. They had to be persistent, They, you know, um, survival of the fittest, and, and they fit that mold, and they've 
developed that. But what's interesting, as I, I delve into Native American history, uh, is that while they, you know, as they're describing different animal species, which they did throughout their, you know, the, the lore that they handed down from elder to elder, you know, uh, no written manuscript, just yeah, by by word, and it was very sacred to them, and they made sure that whoever they handed it down to could repeat it and repeat it and repeat it and pass it on. But um, while they talked about, you know, and and actually, and, and this is interesting because I just got this question asked to me today. It's like, well, they tend to ascribe spirituality to these creatures mm. um, having, you know, supernatural powers. I said they did the same thing with the coyote and the owl and the raven and the snake and the wolf and the turtle, sure. you know, but they were, they were early on, they were more animist, if you will. They almost considered themselves animals. But as time went on, they, they, they realized the difference when it came to intellect and, and, and superiority and, so what I found interesting, and this is going back in some archives in the Smithsonian, you know, as they talked about these beings, they didn't describe them as an animal like they would any other, you know, coyote or snake or rabbit or whatever. Uh -huh. They talked about them entirely differently. And, and the words, the phrases they used were things like the first ones mm -hmm. or the old ones. And when you hear that, what do you think? They're talking about another tribe. Sure. Yep. The ones that were here before us, the first ones, the old ones, but those that are different from themselves, but not animals. Right. And they respected each other. And they lived symbiotically for 19,000 years. We've been around here for what, 300 years? <laughs> Europeans, Westerners, yeah, three hundred years. Who do you think has more knowledge about Bigfoot and Sasquatch? People have been here for three hundred years. People have been here for nineteen thousand years, and had to live symbiotically with these creatures. Yeah, uh, that's kind of a no-brainer, and and uh, they did so not just with the respect, but with mutual respect. Yeah. Because imagine, um, just as we Europeans, Westerners, whatever, uh, landed like a UFO <laughs> on the East Coast, sure. right? Yeah, for sure. Hear me out. Yep. So we, 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 just how the, the, um, Just how we landed on the East Coast and worked our way west, and then in, in a few cases landed on the West Coast before that, um, the Native culture must have been shocked, not just because of our skin color and our, our physiological differences, but because of our intellectual differences and our advancements in science. And, you know, you know they're paddling around in canoes, and we're coming in with 300-foot sailing boats and we have they got bows and arrows we have cannons sure. we have rifles you know just as stark of a difference in a shock a cultural shock as it was for them 300 years ago imagine how much of a cultural shock it was when 19,000 years ago these little shorter hairless <laughs> humans came over invaded North America sure yeah. And the differences were stark, but um, it it stands to reason that, and I had this conversation earlier, it stands to reason that as a, as, you know, put yourself in the feet, no pun intended, of a Bigfoot, and you look down off, say, off a hill and you see these people land on a beach, that have the ability to um, work together to build structures, mm -hmm. housing units, to domesticate animals, to cultivate crops, 
to have weapons and tools. Yeah. You know, it must have been like a Martian mm-hmm. landing in New York City. Sure. It was just such a such an intellectual uh, paradigm shift, as you say. And but they had nineteen thousand nineteen thousand years and a whole hell of a lot of real estate to get used to each other. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yep. Not anymore. Not anymore. Sure. So here's a real paradigm shift. In the last 300 years, and who knows how many generations that is of the of these this species, uh, five, six, um, they've witnessed everything from railroads oh. and uh, weaponry. And the total domination of the one one race of people that they thought were the shit is now sorry we just you can edit that anyway. <laughs> so I mean sorry, but I mean this they 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 must have revered the Native Americans in certain ways because they had different upbringings and different different uh, skill sets. But uh, and I th- I honestly think they learned from each other. Sure. You know, when I look at a wigwam or a, te- a wigwam and a, or a, a teepee, I'm like, who learned what from who? Right. Right. You know. Yeah, that's because I've seen tree structures. I've seen tree structures that I know these things have done. I've only seen four in 28, 28 plus years. But when you get underneath them and you reverse engineer them, it's like this just didn't happen. This is not a wind event, snow event, ice event. This is like made and engineered. And again, I go back and go, did the Indians teach them how to build wigwams or teepees or did did it happen the other way around? But again, they, they lived, they lived again, symbiotically and, and and probably shared technology to some degree. Uh, then along came, came us. And I think that was, so much a quantum shock to their their original relationship with humans that that's why they are so elusive and why why they've hung back and and they're not stupid, but at the same time, curiosity killed the cat, right? Sure, yeah. It's well, curiosity might kill them <laughs> because they're smart and they want to learn and they see what we're doing now, and it hasn't been that many generations since uh, we got here. And they're seeing they're seeing jet aircraft mm-hmm. fly over their head. I know they've got to be intimidated. They've got to be absolutely intimidated, and and scared. And I don't blame them. But still, their Achilles tendon is their curiosity. Curiosity. Yep. No, you, when you get down to like three hundred or less of a species, technically they're extinct because the gene pool becomes shallower and shallower and shallower. I was I was gonna get to one of these questions. Uh, Brent and Don, has Todd experienced infrasound? If so, in what manner, and did it affect him personally? Who have you experienced? Oh, did I? Yeah, infrasound. And what? Uh, I should have seen that coming. So in 1998, um, I did. I uh, put together an expedition. In uh, on the south flank of Saddle Mountain, which is in the northwest corner of Oregon in the coastal range. And I was very fortunate to have along as my teammates, Ron Moorhead and Peter Byrne. Oh, nice. Okay. Um, and, I mean, you couldn't ask for two better people. 
but we'd become friends over the years and, um, we were up there for eight days. We, we actually called it operation entice contact too, because I had one other operation entice contact, which by the way, I think is the best methodology to doing research. Don't, don't chase them down. Right. They'll find you, give them a reason to come in. Sure. Take their curiosity. Anyway, so Ron and Peter and I are up. We had a small motor home up in an elk field. We had master keys to the gates of this timber holding, which was immense. Mm -hmm. We went through, unlocked and locked three gates behind us. We knew nobody would be around. And... Ron had flown up his his uh, private aircraft. He had a, a Cessna Bushmaster plane and landed at the nearby city of uh, Seaside. Okay. And we had hoped to use that plane for aerial reconnaissance, but the weather weather was horrible. It was like on the verge of snow. It was like hail, cold rain. I don't think it actually snowed, but it was pretty damn close. Okay. So on day six, Ron said, I hate to do this, guys, but we got a break in the weather. I would rather fly out on visual yeah. instrument uh, rather than, uh, or what do they call it? Anyway. Yeah. So he said, I'd just rather fly out while the weather's clear. Sure. And so he talked Peter into driving him down to Seaside, which was about an hour away. And so I figured I got two hours to kill. Now I'm by myself. I'm going to go up and set up these seismic ground sensors. Oh. And I'm, I'm working up to that inf infrasound thing. So hang oh, with me. No, no, so, no hurry. Yeah. So, so uh, I had on loan from the North American Science Institute, a set of seismic ground sensors. I have a set myself, and I'd already set them up. They gave me another set of eight of them. They, these measure vibration in the ground and send a silent signal to a receiver. Okay. And I thought, well, this is as good as time as any. I got nothing else to do. My two partners left me. <laughs> and so I went up above the base camp in an area that just had reprod, which were trees that were maybe eight to 10 feet tall. Okay. And I thought, I'll just set these up. I, I wasn't really familiar with them, but I said, I'll set them up and calibrate them, you know, figure out what their detection range was and just make a picket line up above the base camp in case anything came down out of the old growth up above, you know, we'd be able to intercept them and know something was going on. So I got like two of them in the ground and I realized there was a hailstorm coming in. Oh, and I looked down at the base camp, and it's on the, it's coming in from the other side of the base camp, and I'm thinking, I probably am not going to make it down there. Not that I needed to, but it's like, I don't want to get smacked with hell. Yeah. So I thought the option, you know, plan B was to go up into the old growth trees, which were maybe 50 yards above me, and just use those giant, you know, fir trees as an umbrella. So I went up there. I was just going to wait out this hail storm cell to pass by and then go back down and finish my work. So while I'm up there, I had to answer the call of nature. I had to take a pee. Can I say pee? Uh -huh. Okay. Just checking. Sure. The letter P. Okay. So anyway, so I take care of business and I'm just, I'm just buckling up my belt. When from my 11 o'clock, I got hit with the loudest, most unnatural federal roar Oof. from maybe 70 to 75 feet away. And I mean, I felt it. I didn't just hear it. It was, I mean, the, the, you could feel the chalk wave of the voice. It was like 130 decibels and did not fit any, any known animal uh -huh. up there. Not a, mountain lion, not a bear, not a, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't even close. It was about three seconds long and it was the most terrifying three seconds of my life. 
Well, no, I can't say that because it was the following two minutes that were even more terrorizing. We couldn't do anything. Uh, I was uh, so I always thought the the expression "paralyzed with fear" uh-huh. was just that. It was just a euphemism. I learned that day it is not. Um, you're talking about a person who's summited mountains, swam with sharks, jumped out of perfectly good working airplanes, been shot at with mortars, rockets, and sure. And small caliber and, and large caliber bullets in Iraq and all the rest. Uh, I, I, that, that moment, which, again, two minutes, was a level of fear I'd never, ever want to experience again. Wow. In fact, I'd pay you money. You know, a lot of people say, I'd pay money to experience what I experienced. No, I'd pay you money not to let me experience that again because yeah. I've never felt so helpless. In fact, in fact, I have a friend who had a very similar situation up in Washington State, and I won't go into detail. I know we're short on time, but um, this uh, this guy's a big dude. He's He's... He's former MMA fighter, rodeo rider, bad guy. And he had something similar where something got up on him at very close range. And this guy froze. Now, the question you asked and, and the answer I haven't given is, I don't know. Okay. Uh you talk about infrasound. So when you say sound, I think, what did I hear? Sure. It was a loud sound. I know what I heard. Yeah. It was an extremely loud sound. Now, the when you talk about infrasound, that's totally undetectable to humans. Right. Whales can do it, elephants can do it, tigers can do it, um, but it's not measurable within the human detection range. Right. Now, was there some infrasound embedded in that? I don't know. I had no way of measuring it. Right. Now, I've, I've literally asked myself the same question. There's people that say they can, quote-unquote, zap you. Sure. Uh, I don't, I, you know, as a pragmatic matter, I, sorry, I don't like the word zapped, Sure. but maybe we're talking about the same thing. I don't know. If for sound has the, uh, at least when we talk about elephants, tigers and, and whatnot, it has the ability to stun prey. Sure. Right. Um, but again, I, I guess to answer your 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 listener, I can't say for certain. All I can say is Maybe. me and this other friend of mine, I don't think I blinked in two minutes. Mm. Wow. I don't think I literally blinked. There was something, don't get me wrong, there was something inside me that said, run. Right. Run for all your worth, just run. But there was something more primal that said, if you want to live, do not move. Uh, sure. And maybe that would show some sort of submission. I don't know. But if I ran, that would be like an admission of guilt. I don't know. I just know that what I heard and what I felt, I don't ever want to feel again. I don't blame you. I, I, I believe I was growled at when I was younger um, by what I think may have been a Sasquatch. And it was a deep rumbling bassy growl that didn't fit any of the local fauna at all um and it it, it terrified me it was the most scared i've ever been in my life Mm -hmm. i know i could have turned around to see what was doing it but i didn't dare it was just just that feeling like nope i'm not doing i'm not looking because i thought it was going to kill me (laughs) you know and the one i don't blame you the one solace i had was that I didn't have to see what it looked like when it was killing me. You know, I just, I mean, that's where my head was at. Well, it's funny you should say that because the time, the the whole time I was standing there, I prayed, 
I, there were two things went through my mind. I was praying, dear Lord, just, you know, make this stop. Yeah. But kind of subconsciously to the animal or whatever admitted that, I was like, if you're going to kill me, just get it over with. Yeah, just make it. Quick. I was that frightened. Yeah, I I knew whatever made that sound yeah. could probably dispatch me. I probably wouldn't even feel it. Right. I just wanted it to be over. I never wanted something to be over. Well, maybe that third marriage, but no, <laughs> um, I kid you. No, uh, I just seriously. I I just I wanted out of there. Right. Sure. I. I I wanted that feeling to stop and thank God it did. And then it, as soon as I started to move, uh, trust me, I was looking, I'm looking around. It was just crazy. Cause I had like a 300 Magnum Weatherby rifle, uh-huh. a 12 gauge shotgun with slugs and a nine millimeter Glock down in the base camp. You know, I, Ron and, and uh, Peter left. And I'm thinking, it's not very far from camp, you know, I'll just go up there. And I left all that behind. So, sure. and even so, I don't know if I had, even if I had the 300 Magnum, yeah. what was I going to do with it? Right. Yeah. What was I going to do with it? Fire into the the hedges where it came from Yeah. and hope I hit it. I hope I don't just wound it or, you know, yeah. save one bullet for myself. <laughs> I was just like, yeah. I was completely in a place I'd never been before. And I really honestly don't ever go back there again. Wow. I don't blame you I, at all. Um, we got another question that has been asked a couple of times, but do you believe that there are more of them out there than there used to be? Or do you think that it's just more people talking about them than there used to be? Or what's your take on that? Man, I'm so glad you asked that, uh, or your your listener did. Um, we don't know. Okay. How can you know? Sure. Good point. So you, what you have to understand is from the time I had my experience, I have been torn between, you know, keeping quiet and going public and, and ultimately with some encouragement, I did go forward with it. But then now that I have, the question is, is there a purpose? Sure. And I can't help but think there is. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, 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 I've talked with the good Lord, you know, I know I've, I mean, what I saw was, meant to be right. you understand something 25 seconds went by right yeah what if we were coming down that hill a minute earlier or maybe passing by a minute later would i even seen it sure. what if i was having a conversation with the alternate driver in the front passenger seat i'd be looking the opposite direction right you know what if what if what if but the fact is what was what was is what was and i had this experience right and i keep asking myself why and so you know i've gotten to a point where it's like there must be a purpose there's got to be a purpose otherwise i've never seen them right right let alone the other three that yeah the other three witnesses but for me um i got to a point where i just said if you weren't meant to see this you wouldn't have and you did so what are you going to do about it todd and i'm like (laughs) uh, i'm like i don't know what should i do with it and so this is kind of the the genesis of the american primate conservancy sure and the key word is conservancy um conservation now i know there's a lot of people out there that'll say um, leave them alone. They don't need our protection. They're doing just fine. And to me, that's a rather romantic notion based on absolutely nothing. 
except feelings. Okay. Here's where I come from. Here's where I come from. I want to know that it is extremely rare as it may be. I want to know that my grandchildren, my great grandchildren and so on as rare again, as you know, I'd be taken into consideration at least that they would have the same possibility of experiencing what I have. Sure. Because it never ceases to amaze me how 25 seconds of then my adult life as a 34-year-old, 34 years on planet Earth, yeah. and 25 seconds has really mm -hmm. seriously dictated everything, yeah. absolutely everything. The people I've come to know, the things I've done, uh, the woman I married and the house I live in, yeah. everything, this conversation, yes. it just blows me away. 25 seconds made such an impact on me. And so, and, and, and like I say there again, the, because of that, I have to find a meaning. I have to find a purpose. And I really believe my purpose is to get them officially recognized and yeah, they may be fine. Mm -hmm. You know, the union of, uh, the UINC, the, the unit of international, uh, conservation of nature in Stockholm, Sweden is the one that really track internationally track the health of species. Okay. They're the ones that have what they call the red list, which is nine different categories of animals from extinct to perfectly fine. They have a couple of categories that Bigfoot fits in. So, uh, data deficient. Hmm. Yeah, they're known or, or understood to exist, but we don't have enough data. Data to determine what the health of the species is. And not enough data to actually classify them. And, and even the 1973 Endangered Species Act in the United States leaves open the possibility of protection for animals that aren't officially recognized. So there are some some laws out there that uh, or regulations that we can kind of lean on and try to get them recognized but without recognition they're not going to get protected and like i say until we know how many exist today which we don't know yeah and then compare that with how many existed a hundred years ago and compare that to how many existed a thousand years ago let alone nineteen thousand years ago until we can see a trend and until we know that they are safe, that they're, they're not threatened or, or endangered, then I think it's best that we side on the, you know, we err on the side of caution uh -huh. and, you know, worst case scenario, we find out they're doing just great. Fine. <laughs> but I, w I don't want to go to my grave finding out that nobody stepped up for them right. and made an effort to, you know, realistically gauge the health of their species. And, you know, the last people think the, the definition of extinction is the last member of a species to die. Yeah. Well, there's such a thing as technical extinction and technical extinction gets down to like 300 or less. Oh. And when you get down to that, yeah, hmm. no, you, when you get down to like 300 or less of a species, Technically, they're extinct because oh. the gene pool becomes shallower and shallower and shallower. Sure. And in the process, their immune systems become compromised. You start getting birth defects because there's just not enough diversity within the species to have a healthy species. Oh. So we don't need to let it go down to the last one because, you know, you know where I'm going. I'm just saying I... My 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 stance is err on the side of caution. Yeah. Let's just I think it's until we you know, we got something out there. I think we can all agree on that. Sure. We don't know for sure what their the health of the species is. 
And and it's not just the, the number of species, but it's the habitat and resources that they require. And we don't even know that. So right. until we do, yep. what's it hurt to list them as potentially, you know, list them as data deficient? That's fine. At least list them. Right. And then, you know, let's, let's do what we can to protect them. And mm. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. No, it's a great soapbox, and I think that we're all with you on that. That you know, they, we, we don't know. It seems like there's a lot of them out there, but that's because there's a lot of people claiming to see them. But you're right; we don't know how many. We don't know what kind of range they take up. That you know, it could be one of them that makes up a you know twenty five, thirty percent of uh, sightings in one area, just because they move around and maybe have a range. So there's so much we don't know. That you're right. I think there's so many questions. Right, so many questions, and there's so much to learn, and we're certainly not going to learn unless we are asking these questions and and looking and trying to substantiate the species. So I'm, I'm with. Well, you. like I say, it's uh, it's it's. I think we can learn from each other. Is right. the thing. Uh, I think the natives learn from them. I think they learn from the natives, and I and I think sure. to an extent. They're trying, due to their curiosity, they're trying to uh, understand us, but in the same token, they're, because of the very distinct differentiation between us and Native Americans, they're kind of, that that they're very intimidated. Right. I mean, it'd be like if a UFO landed in your backyard, you're like, (laughs) you know. Yeah. You could hang back, but I think you're going to probably still stay within range to, like, try to figure out what they're up to. But, you know, and I think that's what's going on right now. I think I think the, the, the advent of modern, you know, you know, 17th century incursion of, of humans has been a very discernible difference between the ones they were dealing with going back to 90,000 years ago. And all of a sudden it's a game changer. It's like, where did these, you know, aliens come from? (laughs) I mean, we're about as alien to them as, as we were to the native Americans for that matter. And now they're both, you know, suffering the consequences or trying to make adjustments. So. Amen, brother. But it's been a hell of a journey. And, I can't thank you enough for coming on the show. It was, it's been a, an incredible conversation, and the the chat's already well, talking. Thank about, you. I've already, enjoyed it. They they're already saying you've got to come back. <laughs> so <laughs> well, I'm I'm more than happy to, and I, I appreciate you taking the time with me. And no, I mean we just pretty much scratched the surface. I, but uh, anyway. If you'd like. Thank you for listening to me and giving me an opportunity to sound off and um, and uh, share my theories and concerns and thoughts and experiences and and I hope we can do it again. Absolutely, you you just let me know when and I'll make sure there's room in the schedule, brother. So, but thanks again and uh, thank you to all of you out there, Don. Anything in closing? Uh, just real quick, do you want him to add his contact info? If or... oh yeah yeah, I'm sorry, Todd. Oh, thank you. Yeah, my my bad. It's no, 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 no. Uh, no I appreciate that. Um, so I have a very uh, speaking of relic hominids. I have a website I really need to update. Uh, it's AmericanPrimate.org. AmericanPrimate.org. Uh, you can contact me directly through uh, email, which is AmericanPrimate.aol. Yeah, I'm like the last three people using AOL, but you know, <laughs> when you've had it for 20 plus years, you just, you know, I don't want to lose people, but anyway, yeah, AOL. So American primate at AOL. Um, and I, and I will assure you this, that, uh, we'll treat any reports professionally, uh, seriously and confidentially. Um, we, uh, we're just looking for data. Um, otherwise I have a Facebook page under my name, Todd Neese, N-E-I-S-S, I have another page under American Primate Conservancy. Mm-hmm. And finally, and we never even got to this, but uh, I have a, a page under uh, Beachfoot, mm, oh, Beachfoot. Right. Um, right. on Beachfoot. Facebook. Yep. 
Yeah, Dog we'll, on. We'll, we'll get that next time, though. Yeah, we'll talk about <laughs> Beachfoot next time. We got a whole bunch of There stories. you go. There you go. Well, it's about a year away, so we got plenty of time. But anyway, thanks, guys. I really appreciated uh, you giving me time and and uh, uh, and, your, and your listeners for some very, very great questions. Uh, it's, uh, it's always fun to talk about the subject. Amen, brother. Well, thank you for taking us on, on your journey and sharing all your insights with us. I, I think it's brilliant. Right, guys thank you so much for joining us here on tonight's show i hope you guys enjoyed it please feel free to follow us on facebook facebook.com slash paranormal portal radio as well as finding us on twitter we're on twitter at paranormal portal p-o-r-t-l and uh, we'd love to have you stop by our youtube page and subscribe and check out our shows there we got hundreds of shows journeys into the paranormal portal so i hope you'll check it out check it out guys we're over there at youtube.com slash paranormal portal so Hope to see you guys soon. Uh, we'll be back, of course, for more podcasts in the coming days. So we love you all. Be good, be kind, be nice. Take care of each other. Help each other out. Find the magic in every day. And remember to laugh as much as you can. Mm-hmm.